Welcome. If this is your first time with our church, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. We'll be in Psalm 22 today. Uh, we're going to work our way through Psalm 22. Next week, we'll look at Psalm 110. And then after that, we're going to look at the uh, supremacy of Jesus passages out of Colossians chapter 1 through the rest of the summer. And then uh, I'm not exactly sure we'll after that, but we'll get somewhere. Uh, I'll pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, I thank you that that we don't come if we are in you to get washed white as snow, but that we are white as snow. You have done it. You have completed that on your cross if we are yours. I thank you for the power and the potency of the reality of your cross, the truth of your resurrection, the way you can relate to us because of your incarnation. And I just pray you would meet with us now, Jesus that we'd know you more, that we would be changed, we would be transformed today. I pray for the things that are just for me that they would be forgotten, but the things of you, God, would not. Holy Spirit, please be with us. Lead us. Guide us. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, we'll be in Psalm 22, starting in verse 1. Uh, Today we're going to look at this particular psalm, and the power of this psalm uh, is that it gets at the heart uh, of what is not just at the heart of the psalms, which are about Jesus, and not just at the heart of the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, which is about Jesus, And, and not just that, but the whole core and center of everything that is our life, if we are a Christian, is Jesus. And in his life, we have his perfect life. He can perfectly relate to us. He was here. He was a man, fully God, fully human. We have his pre-incarnate power that before the foundations of the earth, that this was his plan to redeem a people. Uh, We have his resurrection. We have his ruling and reigning right now. But at the core of all this, and something that, that sort of conveys the message of all that is his cross. His cross has All of that in there. Not only is it the center of Jesus, but it's the center of human history, and it's the center of our church. We're here because of Jesus, and the clearest things that we can see about Jesus, we see on his cross. Um, For me, the the first time I saw some of the stuff that we're going to look at today, the first time I saw both the the power of his glory and his goodness, and the tragedy that that is forsakenness and his murder, Uh, In that, uh, I remember sitting for the first time, really breathing it in, soaking it in, and realizing that Jesus didn't call me to himself to make me a good person. Jesus didn't need one more good person. He died on the cross to make me a son. And that if you're a Christian, he died on the cross to make you a son or a daughter. That's what he came to do. A son or a daughter who takes in his beauty and glorifies him and points to the reality of who he is to the world because he's good. And he's good. And if you don't know Jesus and you're coming to check out what we think about the world and what we understand to be true, you've picked a very good day to be here because we're going to talk about Jesus. Uh, If you've been with Anchor Church for any amount of time, you'll realize we usually talk about Jesus. In fact, every Sunday we talk about Jesus. But today we're going to look at the core in Psalm 22 at his cross. So let's start right there. Uh, Here's what we're going to do. So the Psalms are poems. And so what we have to be very careful to do when we have a, a psalm is that we don't treat it like a lab frog that we're just, that's just laid out and we're going to just take apart, right? Uh, we're, we're supposed to take in the images and, and the beauty of what's going on here. So I'm going I'm to 
stop sometimes, and sometimes I'll just read a big chunk, uh, but I want this to wash over us, and of course I'm going to start by stopping. So I'll start in verse 1. Uh, my God, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. If we're going to read Psalms right, we need to learn to read Psalms the way Jesus read Psalms. How did Jesus read Psalms? Well, Luke 24 tells us he read them to be about him. Specifically, this Psalm. What do we know about this Psalm? This is a Psalm he actually said from the cross. And this is important as we look at poetry, because what we can kind of do sometimes uh, is we do this thing where we do what's called systematic theology, which I love and is awesome. So systematic theology, whereas I take all of the Bible and I find everything the Bible says about something, right? Now, when I do that, I can get to the place that Psalm 22 is going to take me, but not the way this poetry will. Because what Psalm 22 is going to show us is both the horror of his forsakenness and the beauty of what God's doing on the cross, And in one movement, in one psalm, he'll capture it both. Now, when I do systematics, I can say, well, you know what? I I see here on the cross from the end of Mark's gospel, just the tragedy that is the cross. And then yet I can look at Philippians 2, and I see he's being obedient unto death to call us unto himself. And he's working all these things out. But in this psalm, he's going to put both the beauty and the horror on the tracks together. We're just going to ride down the tracks. And they're going to sit there together. It's going to go back and forth and back and forth. Now, Jesus understood this to be about him, not only because he said it from the cross, because he said so in Luke 24. And not only that, this psalm is quoted in Hebrews, which we'll look at. And this uh, David himself has been, at least at times, is being prophetic. It says so in Acts in 2 and 13, chapter 2 and chapter 13, that they understood that David was talking about the Messiah who was coming, who was Jesus. And in this psalm, we're going to get this complete package. So here we are. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, I'm going to be in a lot of scripture here. So I'm going to have this on the city in a PDF. And all it is is just the scripture and the reference I'm using. Don't worry about flipping here. I just want you to listen. I usually like you to flip, but today I just want you to listen. Okay. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46 through 50. And about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama shamati. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. Because that word sounds like Elijah in Aramaic, Eli, Eli. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine because he feels sorry for Jesus and put, the reed, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, So this is someone having compassion on a dying man, by the way, putting something on the reed and lifting it up to him. And yet the people around him, this is what they say to that compassion. Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. Jesus Christ, the only sinless man who ever lived, dying on the cross, calling out to God, calling us back to Psalm 22. Now, here's what's wild about Psalm 22. What's the very next thing that happens in verse 3? So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's finding no rest. Verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. 
in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. So when you read a psalm, and you're in the New Testament, you've got to have your finger. When you're reading psalms, have your finger in the New Testament. When there's a New Testament reference or in a New Testament reference, you hear a psalm, you're supposed to go back and read the psalm. It's a clue for you as the reader of the Bible to go back, and it includes this whole thing. And so Jesus isn't just saying, why have you forsaken me? But he says this, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. It's because he's Jesus. He's the only sinless man who ever lived. Look at what he does with this spot. Look at how he responds. He's being mocked, ridiculed, crucified, beaten. All these things were told in the scriptures that happened to him. Does he turn on God and get bitter against God and his circumstances? He doesn't. He's calling us back to the rest of Psalm 22 because he's the perfect sinless man. My heart goes bitter. Our hearts can go bitter when we find ourselves in circumstances. You are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. And he calls us back to the story. He calls us back to a bigger story. To you they cried. Who's they? In you our fathers trusted. They trusted you and delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. He's calling them back to the impossible story of Egypt. He's calling them back to the impossible redemption God worked in the lives of his people when the hegemonic, domineering Egypt had them as slaves. And God came and flexed. And God came and saved them. And God came and got them. Jesus in this spot, like in the rest of the Psalms, one of the reoccurring themes in the Psalms, is faith and hope. It's hope in what God's going to do in the future to put the world back the way it's supposed to be, including ourselves. And it's faith that even when I look at my life, or I look outside, or I look at Seattle, or I look somewhere else in the world, that even when it doesn't look like Jesus is the king, he is the king. And even when it's hard to understand that I don't see the way God sees, I am not God. Praise the Lord. And I can trust that he's actually working out all things for good for those who love him. Now, what we have to be careful there is don't put a neat bow on that. Don't tell people uh, how... You, it's not for you to tell people in the midst of their suffering or their struggles exactly how God is working that out if you don't know. If you see something and it's clear and you can encourage them, encourage them. But don't sit like Job's friends and try and figure it out. Because God will speak that to them. Or maybe on the other end. We weep with the weeping. So he goes, straight he goes to, my God, my God. And this next set, he doesn't get bitter. He points back to God, the reality of his faith and his hope. And then verse 6, what happens? So right after five, to you they cried and, uh, and were rescued. In you they trusted and not put to shame. And what happens in six? Does he keep going with the, the psalm of encouragement? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. That's Jesus. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Mockingly. Mark chapter 15, verse 26. And the inscription on the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, as a mockery to Jesus. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on the right side and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, 
You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. God who came to save the world, God who came to save the very people who were mocking him, came by to mock him. Elsewhere we're told in the scriptures that the two thieves on either side of him mock him. Yet you, verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. Oh, you, on you was I cast from birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Can we have a quick conversation about the phrase boring testimony? one of my least favorite phrases. Sometimes you hear that phrase, well, I have a boring testimony. I I loved Jesus my whole life, and I trusted the God of the universe and enjoyed him uh, my whole life. I don't even remember when I became a Christian. I was just a Christian my whole life, and he's always been near to me, and he's been awesome. I have a boring testimony. Not like the guys who went out carousing and partying or whatever. Those guys have the testimony where they come up on stage. I got out and... I got out of this, that, and the other, and it was awesome, and everybody claps. And you know what? When they do, when people get redeemed out of this, that, and the other, whatever that might be, Yeah, we are stoked. Man, we will be stoked. We'll cry at your baptism when you get redeemed out of all the junk. And you know what else we do? When you stand up and say, Jesus was near to me my whole life and I love him. We cry. He's so faithful. He's so faithful. He's just working this out in our own lives. Because, man, once you have kids, boring testimonies are not boring anymore. Right? John the Baptist, and by the way, John the Baptist has the least boring testimony of all time. Filled with the spirit at his mama's womb, comes out wearing camel hair and a belt like Elijah, preaching in the middle of nowhere like a crazy man, uh, you know, eating bugs dipped in honey. Like, he's my kind of guy. Like, I like John the Baptist. I've always thought he was cool. That's not a boring testimony. You don't have to have a boring testimony. You get to live your life for the glory of Jesus every moment of every day. Praise the Lord. Anyways, uh, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you I, cast, I was cast from birth. We see this with Jesus, right? We see this baby come into the temple and guys, old guys who God promised Messiah was coming and he would meet them. The baby comes in and the old guy just cries. God's done it. Salvation's here. He's going to put it back. It's going to be restored. The baby is going to do That guy had faith. A baby is going to do what? Everything. When he's 12 in Luke's gospel. Now, I don't know how this happens, except for we believe he probably had a really big family. They leave Jerusalem and they forget that Jesus isn't with them. Oops. When I was eight, my parents had one of those celebrity uh, station wagons with the, with the jump seats in the back. You ever seen one of those? So you can't actually get yourself in and out. You're dependent on your parents to let you in and out from a yellow button under the dash. Uh, me and my cousin Jeff were sitting there waiting in the dark, dark parking lot in the middle of the night. And my dad uh, makes his own like dad jokes, which I won't tell any right now because they're horrible and I'll stop. But he, he starts driving up the parking lot. And I'm so uh, expectant of my dad's character in this joke-telling arena that my cousin's like, we've got to get the car. I'm like, no, we don't. He'll be back. And I'm, I'm playing chicken with him, right? I'm like staring down. I'm not going to run. 
not this time. And my cousin's like, he's, he's going to leave us. I'm going to go. And he runs, and they see him running in the taillights. They're like, oh, crud, we forgot the guys. And they let him in. They come back, and they get me. They were going to leave us in the parking lot in the dark, and I didn't even know my parents' phone number. I need a quarter for a payphone. No one had cell phones then, right? They leave Jesus behind, and they come looking for him. And Jesus looks at him and says, you know where I was? Well, I was in my father's house. What are you doing here? And all the, all the priests are hanging out being like, I don't know, he's teaching us stuff. This is weird and creepy. They're actually really excited, but it wasn't creepy for them. But you also have to understand that he wasn't, um, this isn't the, if you read some like the church fathers, sometimes they do weird stuff. Like they have Jesus talking Plato with his mom at three months and not crying like a baby. Uh, you have to understand he was a baby, he was a person. Someone had to change his diapers and cried and stuff, right? Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. What I think is amazing about this is that we're told, and we're going to dig into this with Psalm 110, that Jesus is our high priest, that he was made like us in every way but knew no sin. And that these moments, when you're you're feeling this, when you're feeling, why have you forsaken me? When you're feeling alone, when you're feeling, there's there's no one to help. That Jesus actually knows what it feels like to be you. I mean, we're going to dig into this deep next week, so I don't want to blow it because it's awesome. Not blow it. It's not like a punchline or something. But what I, what I mean is we have to understand that we can actually pray this along with Jesus. We can cry out for help, and he knows what it is to be ditched by all his friends. He knows what it is to be abandoned. He can actually uh, not just sympathize, but empathize with us in everything. God himself can. That's amazing. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like like a ravaging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. John 19.31 Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies did not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for the Sabbath was a high day the Jews asked Pilate who was the guy in charge that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. That's a really horrible way to speed up the process. Uh, they fall and the crucifixion, the whole process speeds up and they, they get, they'd suffer from asphyxiation from blood in their lungs. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Everyone was surprised, by the way, when they heard that. But they'd beaten him up so bad uh, that it was a quick death on the cross. Not as quick as a cross death can be anyways. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out of blood and water poetic imagery, I think, foretelling this, this instance where he stabs him and the water just pours out. Like, I just kind of imagine his heart melting. He who saw it has borne witness. This is John saying this. I included this because this is important. His testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And he tells us more prophecy. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. One of the things that was a huge deal for me as I 
as I first became a Christian, and I was just struggling through what was true. Uh, becoming a Christian and seeing the truth of the Scripture and the reality of the Gospel was such a radical reorientation for my whole life and my whole being because I was made new and I had this new heart. You're, when, you're, when you meet Jesus, you enter into a new kingdom and you enter into a new family. And sometimes it takes a while to figure out what this family is like. Right? Sometimes you do old family stuff. Right? You, you, you do the old family stuff. I have, a, I have a friend who had a daughter who he adopted. Um, I'll, I'll keep the story as brief as possible. Anyways, uh, adopted daughter living in his house. Uh, he comes home cranky. She comes from a bad house where when dad came home cranky, things were going to get really, 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 really bad. He comes home. He's feeling cranky. She just goes up to her room. She's, she's grown adult, starts packing her stuff, and she's ready to go because she knows what happens when dad gets cranky. He goes upstairs and he sits down and there's her adoption certificate on the wall. He says, what does that say? He talks to her really nice and quiet for a while. I said, what is that? What is that? That's the, the thing where I'm in. I'm in your family now. And he says, yeah, you're in my family now. This is a different family than the other family. This, this is, things work different here. I'm sorry for being cranky. Please forgive me. She never even heard anyone say sorry to her before, uh, let alone this instance where she expected things to go really, really bad. We come out of a different kingdom, uh, a survival of the fittest, dog-eat-dog, everyone's after everything for themselves kingdom, and we're ushered out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light where Jesus Christ has saved us from ourselves and made us new. And sometimes the love of God in that framework, the fact that I'm no longer earning my love from God, but I'm no longer trying to do things so God will love me. I'm no longer trying to make my identity in the world, but I have a new identity that is secure as son or daughter because of the cross. Honestly, sometimes that takes a while to get used to. Sometimes you still act like the old family stuff is true. Right? So much of sanctification is realizing who you actually are now because of the blood of the cross. You're not who you are. You are who you are. And even the way some of your friends or family might even treat you, well, you know how that, that guy is. He always does blah, 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 blah. Well, he did until Jesus saved him from himself. Well, you know how she is. I know how she was. That gal's dead. There's a new gal in town. She loves Jesus. She's new. One of the things that was a big deal for me as I was finding that orientation in the world was realizing how profoundly prophetic the Old Testament is. How many of these things are here, Psalm 50, or Isaiah 50, all this stuff that's pointing forward to Jesus, and you begin to reorient yourself around the fact that this is one big story. We broke it. Well, God made it good. We broke it. He makes a promise to fix it. And he's working through broken people to restore everything, leading it to Jesus who's going to come and save the world, save a people, and put everything back the way it's supposed to be. Now we live between the cross, the redemption when he came to do that, and the time when he actually finishes putting everything back the way it's supposed to be, when every tear will be wiped from every eye, when everything will be put back the way it's supposed to be. Right? And when I began to see that these things are here to point us to the reality of Jesus, it changed the way I read my Bible, but also changed my understanding how God is working in the world. These are important. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws you may lay me in the dust of death. John 19, 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing, now, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 
A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Hundreds of years before crucifixion's invented, by the way. Hundreds of years before it's invented. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John 19, 23 through 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. Uh, one part for each soldier. So, I mean, catch that right, right? He is on the cross dying, and below him, the guys who are doing this are cutting up his clothes. He has nothing. And they have no respect. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This is to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now hear this. So we're in verse 18. We've got half a psalm to go. And we've laid out pretty clearly the faith and the hope and that one track of just how horrible all this is. How horrible that the only innocent man who ever lived is dying on the cross. Uh, what is happening here? That he's being forsaken, that he who knew no sin is, is in this, as we're looking at it through the lens of the psalm, predicting when he becomes sin, when, the man, uh, uh, when, the only, uh, when he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. There's something big happening here. We switch to 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious, precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me. The tense just changed. You have rescued me. What? Doesn't the psalmist know the psalm's not over? What do you mean you've rescued me? Didn't it, wasn't it talking about like dying and stuff up here? You lay me in the dust of death. But you, Lord, not, be, be not far off from me. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. This is the same guy who's saying, why have you forsaken me? Um, if you've heard me preach on the cross before, you may have heard me use this illustration, but I think it is one of the best that Charles Spurgeon ever had. And he said that Jesus on the cross is like a, a basil in a mortar and pestle. That when you crush the herb in the mortar and pestle, the herb doesn't get worse, it gets better. It brings out the smell. It brings out what it's actually supposed to be. It brings out what basil actually is. He doesn't use basil, but I like basil. For he is not, he's not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he's not hidden in his face from him. 
But he has heard when he cried to him. Hebrews 2, 10 and 15 through 15. Uh, for it was fitting that he whom by... Uh, for it was fitting that he for whom and by all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all having one source. That's God. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying... And he's quoting the psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So now if we're reading Hebrews right, we go back to Psalm 22 and start there. And we start reading it and we say, wait. But what about all those forsakenness? I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through the death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death who are subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus has come on the cross to make us free. Jesus has come to save us. Jesus has come before the foundations of the earth to plan to come and liberate us, to liberate you, to liberate me. And the thing about it is, is as we sit in bondage, it's not like we're the guys, uh, you know, in Hogan's Heroes or something, we're figuring out how to get out. That was way the wrong reference, too dated. Does anyone even know what Hogan's Heroes is? Like two, three people, right? It's not like a, a, a thing where we get it. It's a thing where we're stuck. It's a thing where we're dead. And he comes in and makes us alive. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And then from the rest of it, there's no alternating here. For he's not despised or bore the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. For you... From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who I fear. The afflicted, uh, this word can also be translated meek. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. I wonder, this is a wonder moment. This is not a uh, for surezies moment. But I wonder, is for surezies a technical term? Technical exegetical term? Uh, the word for surezies, uh, the meek shall eat and be satisfied. I wonder if Jesus isn't thinking of this when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. We have to understand what meekness is. It helps if we have the other two verses, uh, four and five. Uh, which are escaping me right now. Please forgive me. Verse 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, to be poor in spirit is to understand who God is and who you are. 
Once I actually got to understanding what the Beatitudes were, they, they changed my life. They're one of those things where when I was first reading the Bible, I really liked Paul because I got what he was saying sometimes. Um, but I had no idea what Jesus was talking about when he's preaching and doing parables. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, uh, approved are those who see who God is and see who they are and know there's a difference between the two. John Calvin, the Institutes, chapter 1 he says, that is the beginning of understanding everything. Understand who God is and understand who you are, and that changes everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who God is and who you are. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So when I see who God is and I see who I am, I'm kind of bummed out, to be honest with you, because he's holy and I'm not. Blessed, blessed are those who mourn. But then, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's meekness, biblically? Uh, meekness is humility, and it's biblical humility. And so biblical humility is not where you pretend to be humble. Uh, Biblical humility is not the thing where you bake a cake and someone says, this cake is the best cake that I've ever eaten of all the cakes in all the world. And you say, no, stop. (laughs) But you know in your heart it is the best cake of all the cakes (laughs) that anyone has eaten in the whole wide world. That's not humility. Uh, Humility is not walking around telling everybody how much you serve or how much you suffer, how much, how much, how much. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, put it really, 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 really well. He says, biblical humility, understanding who God is and who you are, is making it to where um, if you are an architect and you built the greatest cathedral that there ever was, that you would look at it and say, God is amazing for working through me to do that thing. Just as much as you would if you walked out and saw the greatest cathedral there ever was and some other architect built it. And you'd look at it with the same heart and say, God is amazing for working through that guy to build that thing. Do you understand that when God does amazing stuff, it's God who's doing the amazing stuff? Right? That it's, that it's him at work out in the world. It's him at work in your life. And even how much confidence does that give us? Because you might have one great cathedral, but if it's all on you, you've got to produce, man. If it's just what God's doing, we can praise. They're different. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, points us to uh, what he's doing, right? He's going to put things back. He's going to have his people and the world put back through the power of his cross, through the power of his resurrection, where he's ruling and reigning. The afflicted, the meek, the meek shall eat and be satisfied I think of Isaiah when he says, you're going to buy food that you don't have money for. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Now we're all of a sudden talking about the people who are seeking who? This forsaken one. Who are seeking God through the anointed one, through the Messiah, through Jesus. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of all the nations shall worship before you. I think of Revelation when it talks about a representative from every people group on planet earth in the kingdom with Jesus forever. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn. That's you, by the way. Because this was written before you were born. That he has done it. That he has done it. John 19.30. I believe this is what it's referencing. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, 
It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So the psalmist bookended. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With Jesus proclaiming, it is finished. What's finished? Everything. Another way you can translate this Greek word, paid in full. Everything that needs to happen for you to know and love God has happened. It is finished. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. That what happened on that cross is sufficient for you and for I and all who would call on the name of the Lord to know God. That there is no barrier between us and God. There's one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. He's it. He's done it all. And it's finished. And on these two tracks, we have the beauty that it is finished and the horror that he was forsaken. He was forsaken so that it could be finished. He died on the cross so that you could know God. Systematics, you can put a couple verses next to each other and and it makes my heart sing. But poetry, you can just put the tracks there together. It's finished. We're atoned. If we only think it is finished or even paid in full, you can think of those uh, where you kind of make the list of all the things that are finished, all the sins that have been completed. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone on the cross, dead, gone. Name one, on the cross. If you're in Jesus, gone, dead, dealt with. You don't have one. You cannot outsin the cross. You don't have one bigger than the cross. You don't have one bigger than it is finished. You don't want to have one he can't deal with. You don't have anything bigger. You don't have anything better than Jesus. You cannot outsin the cross. It will not happen. You can try and you cry, try and you'll lose. Don't, by the way. It's finished. It's paid for. His blood has washed us clean. We're atoned. So don't just think of it as those sins that have been dealt with. They have, and praise the Lord. But because they have been dealt with, we are atoned. This is a word that a guy made up. His name's John Wycliffe, not the guy from the Fugees, made up the word atoned because there wasn't a good English word to say what is happening here and the power of what is happening through the cross. He had to make a word up for it. Atonement. We're made one. We're made right. It's not just, and it is, I I don't want to underplay the fact that your sins are forgiven because they are so forgiven, but they're not just forgiven in such a way that it's a list that's been dealt with. They're forgiven in such a way that you go from being enemies to being friends, that you go, go from being people who are far from God to being people who are near to God. You go from being people who don't know God to being people who do know God. You go from being people who don't love God to being his kids through the cross and through the blood. And what's amazing about this is this is the starting place for holiness. You want to change, I bet. I'll put money down. There's something in your life you want to be different. There's something in your life that you keep saying, God, why this? Why won't this go away? Why why haven't I been able to deal with it? I dealt with this, 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 and this. God, why won't this go away? Why is that back again? Why is that rearing its ugly head? And then you make a list of all the the plans and the strategies of how you're going to deal with it. And and the guys, you have an accountability group, and they're they're getting on you about it, and they're making you feel bad. So you're like, well, they feel bad about this thing I keep doing, so I better try not to do this thing anymore. Ever had that one? People just like, why did you do that again? I don't know. I mean, you wanted to, yes. But what I... 
As long as we're trying to change out of our muscles, we're going to miss it. When we change because we understand this is how much God has loved us and this is what he's built us for and we're in the new family now and we're his and we see both the horror and the beauty of the cross and we understand God didn't save you so that you could be a good person. He could put you on the shelf and have a trophy. Look, I saved so-and-so and isn't he a nice guy? He didn't save you to stop sinning. He didn't save you. The Christianity is not just not sinning. He did. You'll be sanctified. The blessed day when you never, I mean, I don't know if you ever think about this, but there's going to be a time where you never sin again if you're a Christian. You, you don't have a day where you're like, oh, I, I did okay over here, but over here it sucked. Ever again. For eternity. I, I have trouble imagining that. I, I have trouble imagining a time when all I do is just see Jesus and love him all the time. And I promise that through the cross. Because it's finished. But when I understand what he's done, it's the beginning place for holiness. When I don't believe uh, the forsakenness, how serious it was that God's wrath was poured out on him instead of me, when I, when I don't understand that he died in my place for my sins so I don't have to, that I deserve, when I, when I don't see how forsaken he was, I miss the depth and the gravity of my sin. But when I don't believe the finishedness, I get religious. He has taken me this far. I better take it the rest of the way home. I better get in an accountability group because somebody's got to keep an eye on me so I'll feel bad and so I won't do the thing. So I won't tell. Because I don't have to tell him again that I did the thing again. And so my motivation's not actually to stop sinning. My motivation's not to be embarrassed in front of people. That's not changing your heart. My motivation is that I want more of Jesus and he's done it all and I'm washed clean from my sin and I'm not part of that family anymore. I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to Jesus. That's what I want. And I'm not saying don't confess sins to one another. I'm just saying don't let that be the bracket by which you're trying to stop sinning. Does that make sense? Through the cross, we have redemption. Through this finished work, we have redemption. We're free to worship. We get to live as God's people and we get to live on God's mission. We get to be a people who are living this out together as a worshiping community that your cubicle mate, that your buddy in the band you're with, the guy you work with, your neighbor, uh, would see your life. And here's the thing. This is why we've got to live where we live, right? We've got to be where we are, right? My hope is that my friends, when I'm sharing the gospel, my neighbors see my life and say, I do not understand this guy. Because sometimes he seems like one of us, and sometimes he seems like one of them, whatever that means. I, I don't understand it. He's really, really like our neighborhood, or really, really like everybody else who works here, and yet really, really different. And, and that is, as, as people get to know you, as you're standing kind of where they stand, and getting to know their orientation in life, and speak in with love and truth, and engage them where they're at with the truth of the gospel, as you carry the message that they kind of begin to look at your life and imagine what it might be like if they knew who he was. Because they see you and your life. And they know something's different. The greatest thing we get through the cross is Jesus. The greatest thing we have in all this is Jesus. We get him. He's our all. He gave himself to us even though we didn't deserve it in any way, shape, or form. And we get to start that. If you're, if you're living that life, you're like, yeah, I'm a Christmas. He feels so far. Call out to him. 
awe to him. Because here's the reality. Jesus was forsaken for my sin. He was forsaken. He was forsaken for your sin. He was forsaken for every lie you've ever told, everything you've ever stolen, every right thing you've ever done to pat yourself on the back, every cake you've ever made and pretended that it wasn't good so everyone would just keep telling you how good it was. He was forsaken for every time you forgot that your four-year-old was a four-year-old and not a 15-year-old. Now here's the amazing thing about all of that of all your right things for the wrong reasons, of all the right things that you just knew you should have done something and you did nothing. And you even carry it around. Ten years later, you're carrying something around. I should have just... It's finished. It's dealt with. And it's not dealt with when you call your buddy up from ten years ago and say, hey, I knew you were doing this and I didn't call you out. I should, have, I should have called you out. I'm sorry. I love you. I'm, please forgive me. I should have done so. I didn't. It's not finished when you never lie again. It, it's not finished when you never do something like, I really shouldn't have done that. It, it's, not, it's not finished when you've sanctified yourself. It was finished 2,000 years ago on the cross of Jesus Christ when he died for our sins to make us right with God. And that is the fuel for our sanctification. And that is the fuel for our repentance. But the thing that you need to know is the thing that covers you in all your repentance, in all your seeking after him, in all your holiness, is that it's finished. And if you're his, it's finished. And if that's the case for you, you're his son or you're his daughter, and he's dealing with you as his child, not as his enemy. And that's the power of the gospel. It's done. That's the power to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. That's the power of the love of Jesus. That is our life in him. That's what it is to be a Christian, is to be his through his cross. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us for every time we've tried to pay you back for anything you've already paid for on the cross. Forgive us for any time we feel like we've ever owed you for anything we've ever, or you've owed us for what we've done or what we've gone through. But may we know that we're your kids. I pray that you would just speak that to our hearts right now. In whatever mess we're in, whatever junk we're in, whatever happened last week, whatever happened last night, whatever happened this morning on the way here, that our strategy now, God, would not be to try harder, but that our strategy would be to trust more, to take refuge in you, and not to deal with this like your employee, but to deal with this like your daughters or like your sons. That we'd come to you for help, that we'd cry out for you, we'd ask, don't be far from me. Empower me, fill me, help me to turn from my sin and to your love. Help me to glorify you and point to your beauty. Help me, Jesus, please, I need you. We need you. Pray these things in your name and for your glory, Jesus Christ, amen.